Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It is just wonderful to be together in the house of the Lord with the people of the Lord as we celebrate the good news, the glad tidings uh, that this season brings to us and to all the world. My name is Jim Van Erden, and I have the privilege of serving on the session here. A uh, high privilege it is. And um, they, I have the opportunity of welcoming you this day to Christ Covenant Church, where we exist to proclaim the Word of God, to model the grace of God, and to extol the glory of God from this place to the ends of the earth. Um, if you are visiting here with us today, we would love to tell you more about the life of our church here. There are visitor information cards in each one of the pews. Uh, we also want to uh, encourage you to let us know how we can be praying for you so we can take your praises and your petitions before the, the Lord as we delight in doing each week. Uh, there are a number of announcements on the back of your bulletin that I want to draw your attention to. The first being that there's a visitor reception today at 1230 in the Fellowship Hall. All visitors are welcome to that. Our Youth and Senior Adults Christmas Party is Tuesday, December the 20th. Um, and we have our Christmas Eve candlelight service, as is our tradition, Saturday, December 24th at 4.30 p.m. We go through a centuries-old Lessons and Carols service that is um, just rich and delightful, so we want to encourage you to be part of that as well. Please take note that on Christmas Day, our schedule uh, is... A, a bit different. Morning worship is 11 a.m. only. Evening worship uh, at 5.30. There is no Sunday school. Nursery and Children's Church will be available at 11 o'clock, and some will be gathering Christmas Day here in the sanctuary for prayer at 4.30 p.m. Um, I just want to uh, highlight uh, something from our church calendar this week that was particularly special. We had a uh, quite full chapel this morning at Oak Ridge Military Academy of cadets coming in. We had a Christmas party for them that as a church we organized on Friday evening. And there were no less, Neil and I were just talking about this, there were no less than eight or ten cadets who came up to one of us afterwards and said that it was the best Christmas of their lives. And um, the Lord moved, warmed hearts, the gospel was presented, um, a, a full Christmas feast was served to uh, every one of them, stories were shared um, about hardships in life, and it, it, just, it just reminded me something about this church that I love, uh, which is that we're not just a church inside these walls, we are a church that understands what it is to be uh, in the world, not of the world, but also sent into it. And uh, so just thank you to all of you who've been part of different activities, gatherings in your homes, etc. these last weeks as we celebrate the Christ of Christmas and try to point others amidst all the clutter and the clatter to the real reason behind the season. Um, I'd like to just um, close with this, um, a verse from First Peter that struck me this week in 
a Puritan devotion, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, which says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of course, that story runs through the incarnation, that cosmic invasion when the Son of God became a son of man so that we sons and daughters of men might become sons and daughters of the living God. The Puritans wrote this um, about that verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It's gripped me all week since I read it. Remember, dear saints, the day the Lord took you by the hand. Oh, what moved him to take you and to command your chains to fall off. Admire the matchless love that brought you out of wrath. He brought you into his palace on the day you might have been led forth to execution. Be holy his. Be holy his. Amen. Let's now prepare our hearts for the worship of Almighty God. We're gathered this morning for the worship of Almighty God, and it's a delight to have you with us this morning. And if you're visiting with us especially, we're thrilled to have you here, and we trust that you will know something of the goodness and the nearness of God in our midst as we worship Him this Christmas season. Our call to worship this morning is taken from Psalm 34. David wrote these words as he was hightailing it out of Gath, maybe scribbling them down in the back of an envelope. You remember he'd been running from Saul and he hid in Gath, which was Goliath's hometown, which is a sign of desperation. If you're David, the giant killer, and you hide in Gath, you're in a tight spot. And he got beaten half to death in, in Gath, dragged before Achish, who didn't recognize him because he pretended to be crazy. And highlighting, leaving Gath, David writes these words, and it's a wonderful reminder to us that even though he's running from out of the frying pan into the fire, literally, as Saul is still very much out for his blood, that whatever you're facing in life, now is always the right time to worship. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. David, even now I am running from danger to danger. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. What are you fearing this morning? Maybe you've got reason to be frightened. Things are unraveling, life's falling apart, and you're frightened. Or maybe, as is often the case, most of your fears are irrational. What might happen, what could happen, or probably won't happen. And yet you find yourself um, bedraggled by fears. We worship a God who, David says, delivers me from all my fears. And what he did for me, David says, he will also do for you. And worshiping is often the first step out of fear into hope. As Wesley, no. Um, um, the name's gone. The depressive hymn writer in Newton's time, whose name is yeah. Cooper. Cooper. Thank you, William Cooper. Um, my, anyway, he said, "Sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings." Let's stand together and sing to God. Um, our opening praise. Um, Hark the herald angels sing. Hymn number 203 in your Trinity hymnal.
Our God and our Father in heaven, we come into your presence this morning to worship you in the name of the one who is the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father, the mighty God, on whose shoulders rests the government of all things, and in whose name we pray, our elder brother, our Savior, the Lord, our righteousness. And we come, Father, lifting up His name and the words He Himself has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And if you would, if you see any conspicuous uh, spaces in your, in your pews, if you could move toward the middle, that'll help uh, Ben uh, find spaces for some people looking for seats at the back. I'd be grateful. Thank you. Let's remain standing. We'll sing to God's praise. I cannot tell why him whom, or he whom angels worship, let us worship God together.
Amen. Praise God. Um, let's remain standing as we turn to page 847, uh, sorry, 846 in our Trinity hymnals to confess our faith together this morning with the Nicene Creed. Just looking back on Hark the Herald Angels saying, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, as we confess our faith this morning being reminded of what it is to walk with a vow. Consider what it is to walk with Emmanuel. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we turn in our Bibles to the book of Joshua, we're continuing to read through Joshua. I am the elder who gets the interesting chapters to draw and read to you. Um, and this morning, do that. Um, with the blessing of a couple things in mind. One is that we read straight through the Scriptures. We do not believe in a Dalmatian theology, that the Bible is inspired in spots. All of it is given to us uh, with the grand purpose of the Lord. Um, and in this chapter, we are considering all of the kings and their kingdoms that were given by God to the people of God. It was the Lord who fought these battles, not Moses, Joshua, um, and those warriors afield. It was the Lord who fought those battles. But I, I want to just share one other thing that comes to mind as we read this short passage that may seem irrelevant to some of you. This is the time of the year 
when many of us are recounting the gospel story at its beginnings, and we read these great lists of names of who begat who begat who begat who. And some of us skip over that, um, and we do that to our detriment. I will never forget in all of my uh, time in the Holy Land standing in Bethlehem and looking at a massive board with the whole genealogy to Christ upon it. And it was an overwhelming thing because I thought the Lord has given us detail to remind us of the historicity of what happened in time and space and more than anything else as we approach this Christmas season to realize that this is the greatest um, of events, the coming, the resurrection of the coming, the death, the resurrection of Christ in all of human history um, and to revel in it. Uh, So those things in mind, let's turn to Joshua chapter 12 as we thank God for being the Lord of history. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. Sion, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Eror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chinneroth eastward and in the direction of Beth Shemioth to the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Selica, and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Machthites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sion, king of Heshbon, Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. I know some of you at this point are thinking this is like reading Lord of the Rings or something. Um, But this is the true myth. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan from Balgad and the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises toward Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negeb, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the king of Jericho, one, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one, the king of Jerusalem, one, the king of Hebron, one, the king of Jeremoth, one, the king of Lachish, one, the king of Eglon, one, the king of Gezer, one, the king of Deber, one, the king of Gidir, one, the king of Horma, one, the king of Arad, one, the king of Libna, one, the king of Adullam, one, the king of Mechadah, one, the king of Bethel, one, the king of Tapua, one, the king of Hefer, one, 
the king of Aphek, one, the king of Lasharon, one, the king of Medan, one, the king of Hazor, one, the king of Shemron, Memron, one, the king of Akphala, it's getting hard, one, the king of Tanakh, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kedesh, one, the king of Jokneam and Carmel, one, the king of Dor and Napheth, Dor, one, the king of Golem and Galilee, one, the king of Terza, one, in all, 31 kings, all of whom are accounted for in this geographically specific, historically specific accounting of God going before his people and giving his people their possession. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Let us take heed of it. Let's draw near to God together in prayer to confess our sins to God. O Lord, our God and our Father, we come into your presence, the judge of all the earth, whose eyes are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You've said that if we regard with favor iniquity in our hearts, you will not hear us. And so we come, O God, to come clean to you, to confess our sins. As bad as the words we speak are and the things we do are, O oh God, the greater part of our iniquity is inside. Our hearts are trained in greed, We're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. We're prone to grumble, complain. We are strangers to that godliness with contentment that is great gain. We need your forgiveness, O God. Our hearts are so often overruled by lust and ungodliness, a better place to be the haunt of demons than the temple of the Holy Spirit. We come this morning, Father, to rest our hands upon the head of the Lord Jesus and to pray you would forgive us. Forgive us for our lack of faith, our lack of belief in Him and in the gospel our proneness, O God, to be slow of heart, to believe all of the things that you have said. And as we do, O Lord, as we put our hand upon the head of Jesus, we see all of the guilt, the shame, the stain of our sin passing from us to him as he dies in our place and for our sins. Remember the day, O Lord, you cursed him outside the walls of Jerusalem. And bless us. For Christ's sake, amen. What it occurred to me is Jim made his way so well through that list of names, those kings, and those kings who were killed, many of whom, some were hung on a tree under the curse of God. 
Those, they list the names of the kings because the kings are the representative of the people, and the Canaanites deserve to die, and so their kings were killed, and their kings were listed as those who were put to death uh, for the sins of their people, one king after another. And of course, the Bible doesn't end with those kings dying in the place of their people. Um, the Bible ends with with Pilate taking Jesus outside and saying to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried, they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And John especially, but all the gospel writers go to great lengths to underscore the fact that Christ is crucified as a king, crowned with thorns. Behold, the king of the Jews written over his head in all those ancient languages. And he died as a king because he was representing his people. And we deserve the wrath and curse of God. And yet, Jesus dies and Barabbas lives. That's the gospel. And it is no strange thing to see these wicked kings in the Old Testament die and lose their land. The strange thing is the gospel, that Jesus will die in our place. And what he has done is enough as he owns the sins of his people. And it's the meaning of Christmas. Jesus born as a king to die as a king for a sinful and cursed people. Amen. The gospel. If you're trusting him this morning, God's Son has done enough to redeem you. You can lay your deadly doing down. What he did is enough to finish the colossal debt you owe God. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we continue thinking of the silent giving of God's gift. Let's sing to God's praise, O little town of Bethlehem. Hymn 201.
let's go to the Lord now in a time of prayer. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you who are eternal, you exist in and of yourself and are without need in any way. You are infinite, infinite in power and able to do far more than we could even ask or think, and infinite in mercy and able to forgive all of our sins. You are unchangeable, giving us great confidence that you will keep every one of your promises and you are faithful. You are stubbornly committed to your glory and to the good of your people in Christ Jesus. And we praise you this morning that you are a God who deserves all our worship, all our attention, all our lives. Lord, we thank you this morning that you have continued to be so kind to Christ's covenant church and her members. Even just in recent weeks, Lord, you have led many of our beloved members through surgery successfully. We're thankful that Stephen Bryant's knee replacement surgery this last week was without incident and and seems to be quite successful. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to him. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy to Cheryl Long as she has had successful surgeries on her neck and her eyes recently. Lord, we thank you that you have given her back uh, to regain some of the sight that was failing her. Lord, we thank you that you have been kind to bring our college students home for this Christmas season. So many of our young men and women have been gone for the last semester, and, and while we get, catch glimpses of them at, at various holidays and breaks, it's a delight to have them back in worship with us for the next few weeks, Lord. We pray and ask that you would bless their time with their families, with mothers and fathers and siblings and grandparents who are here in the area, that they might be refreshed and restored to be sent back out into the world, back out to school where they might uh, have the energy to complete their studies with discipline and diligence and to the glory of Christ for whom we do all things. Lord, we thank you for continuing to grow Christ's covenant church. It's a, a marvel to us to see the pews fill and overflow week after week. And we acknowledge in our humility, Lord, that it's nothing that we're doing but rather what your Spirit is doing to bring people to this place that they might hear the faithful Word of God proclaimed truthfully and with the power of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the simplicity of the ordinary means of grace, that we don't need to be the sort of church that attempts to appeal to a lost world, but rather a church that attempts to be faithful to a glorious God in our worship. Thank you that the simplicity of the piano and of our voices singing of the red word and the preached word of the sacraments and of prayer are enough. They're enough for us and they're glorifying to you, Lord. Would you keep us faithful to true worship that you might receive glory in this place into all eternity. We thank you, God, for your providence over creation, your most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing us and our actions. Your whole, the whole universe operates at your word. Our existence is conditioned or uh, conditional upon your kindness, upon your authority. We live and move and have our beings in you, and so we thank you, God, that we can trust that you will continue to sustain us unto that day where we're presented blameless and above reproach with great joy before your throne, even as Jesus himself escorts us into your heaven to present us to you according to his righteousness and his work 
in which alone we are received as righteous in your sight. Lord, this morning we would lift up before you a number of requests that burden our hearts, especially at this time of year. This, uh, the holiday season and Christmas is for most people a time of celebration and rejoicing of family and togetherness, but there are among us those who have experienced loss, even great loss, in this last year. And so we pray that you would be a comfort to the people who will celebrate Christmas this year, perhaps for the first time without dear loved ones around the tree. We pray for Leah Ross as she's lost a grandparent recently. Pray for Larry LaPrade, whose son passed away so suddenly, Lord. Would you be with him even as the, the funeral is this coming week? Strengthen him uh, for that day. We continue to pray for the Sheltons, Lord as they mourn the loss of their son and brother Hunter, even as this will be the first Christmas without him, and not just for the Sheltons, but the so many families here who were friends with and loved Hunter, Lord, would you comfort our hearts as we approach this day of celebration that you gave us Christ, even as we acknowledge that sometimes you take away our loved ones to be with yourself. We pray for Jen Grinwis and her family with the recent loss of her father, and for the Andersons as well with Don Retallick's recent passing, Lord, would you be a God of comfort to your people? Indeed, you proclaim in Isaiah 40, to comfort, comfort your people, because you are sending your suffering servant to deal with all of our sin and all of our pain, to assuage our grief and to wash away our guilt and shame that we might spend eternity with you. So please be a God of comfort to us and have mercy this Christmas season on our congregation. Lord, there are those battling cancer now, even Betty Tate and Brian Lowry. We continue to think of Jessica Yelverton as well. Lord, would you strengthen them that they might find joy in these coming weeks as this year comes to a close and as we look on the horizon at a new year, a new year that you will continue to be infinite and eternal and unchangeable and faithful to us. A new year in which we are privileged to live under your kind providence and sovereignty according to your mercy and according to the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus towards us. We pray that you would give us a vision of Christ high and lifted up, seated on the throne with the train of his robe, filling the temple that we might be those who are quick to live lives as living sacrifices, full of worship and full of joy. Lord, as we think about our lessons and carol service and the Christmas Day services, we ask that you would bring unbelievers to this place, that the friends and family of our members and, and, and dear visitors would be, uh, we would bring those who don't know Christ and need to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ this Christmas season. Would you open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf and soften hard hearts that people might understand and perceive and see and repent and be healed. Lord, now to you belong glory and majesty and dominion and authority, for you are before all things and above all things, and in you all things exist. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus from now and forevermore, we pray. Amen. We'll now take up God's tithes and your offerings.
O Lord, our God and our Father, we bless you. We thank you for all of your many mercies. We thank you, Father, for friends and family. We thank you for the health and strength we enjoy. We thank you, O Lord, that it's not always winter and never Christmas, that you have sent the light of the world into this darkness, O Lord, to rescue us. We thank you, Father, for your love for us, for the cross, for an inspired Bible and the Holy Spirit who always works in us to will and to do for your good pleasure. As we turn to your word now this morning, we pray, Father, that you would take this word preached here and across this world, O Lord, that you would go with our missionaries. We think of um, Robbie and Karen and the children in Nantes and France working with the, the refugees there, Father. We pray that you would bless them and their ministry and bring the light of Christ to that dark land that has done so much to extirpate the light of the gospel over the years. Lord, we pray that in your wrath you'd remember mercy and cause the gospel to spread through Robbie's ministry and through here this morning as the word is preached. Lord, you know our need. Give me the words, O Lord, to lead these dear people to Jesus. And we offer these prayers in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you would please take your seats and turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church of Philippi. Chapter 2. And we'll begin... In verse 12, Paul has just unpacked, you remember, the remarkable condescension of God the Son, who made Himself nothing and lived the life of a slave, that slaves might live the life of God's sons in His presence. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out with a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Have you ever considered that your thoughts might be killing you. Researchers now know that gratitude is good for your health. People who are who are described by others as grateful human beings or who are self-consciously grateful are healthier. They tend to have lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol. They have lower stress hormones, the stress hormone cortisol 
they say, 23% lower in grateful people. They tend to have better immune function, more immunoglobulins, more white blood cells in circulation to fight infection, less stress, better sleep too. And their brain seems to be protected from the effects of aging all by um, the simple act of gratitude. Your thoughts may or may not be killing you this morning. If you think about that, because you have an average 70,000 thoughts a day. That's a little more than one thought per second, I think, depending on what you sleep, think when you're sleeping. 70,000 thoughts a day. According to the Bible, by nature, all of those thoughts are sinful. Genesis 6-5, God said, every intent, every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Every only continually. All of those thoughts are sinful, and most of those thoughts are negative. Now, I have to confess this morning, I am preaching this sermon entirely for me. If it, if it benefits any of you this morning, bless the Lord. But I'm from Northern Ireland, and our national sport is grumbling and complaining. Why am I talking about thoughts? Well, Paul tells the church in Philippi, do all things, all things, without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling and disputing can never have a place in a Christian family or a Christian church, never a good place, never a right place. Where do grumbling words come from? Grumbling heart. Where does a disputing, argumentative language come from? comes from an argumentative heart. It's always striving for its way and what it wants. And a moment's reflection, I think, will bear out what I just said, that all of our thoughts are sinful and most of them are negative. Even Christmas. You're driving down Jefferson Avenue, and it's Christmas time, and some of the houses have no lights up at all. And you think, what's, are they an atheist? What's up with them? And then you get down to the other end of Jefferson Avenue. It looks like the slaughter of the, of the sugar plum fairy, because all the, all the decorations are just deflated and lying in the ground as if an axe murderer had made his way through the yard. But when they're puffed up in the evening, you think, why so many? I mean, it's, it's a little bit tacky. Now, if some of you, if, if you, if you're here this morning visiting, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. But, you know, it's like we have the Goldilocks syndrome. Things are either too much or too little, but very rarely just right. Our thoughts. Listen back, if you will, to the, the background tape of your thinking this morning. Are you a contented soul? Are your thoughts the music of a soul that's resting in God, content? Are you grumbling? What are you grumbling about? Why are you grumbling? Are you right to grumble this morning? I wonder. 
In our text, Paul is going to point out to us that a grumbling, argumentative spirit is a cancer to a church. It short-circuits our spiritual growth. It unhinges our capacity to witness and even threatens to undo us in the end. It's almost as if Paul says, you either hold fast to the word of life, the gospel, or you hold fast to words of death, grumbling, argument. You can't do both. And if you give in to grumbling and disputing, Paul says, it may be we get to the end of time and we stand on the day of judgment. And I realize, Paul says, that my ministry at Philippi has been a complete waste of time because they couldn't rescue you from a grumbling and argumentative spirit. That's where we're going to go this morning in our sermon. Are you, are you a person with a grumbling heart? Are you better at being a critic than a coach? And arguing and fighting, squabbling, always trying to get one up on other people? What do you think? Let's look at our text this morning. Grumbling, disputing. The word grumbling in uh, the Greek means to mutter discontentedly under one's breath. Literally, it means behind the scenes talk. That's where grumbling always begins. We rarely will bring our grumbling out into the, out into the public sphere. When we do that, it's an advanced case of the sin of grumbling. Most of the time, though, at first at least anyway, we grumble behind the scenes, muttering under our breath, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not, I deserve better than this. Uh, and we grumble, Right? behind the scenes, under our breath, how unhappy we are, how unfair our lot is, how wrong it all is. In that sense, grumbling is actually a form of anger. Did you ever think of that? Anger is the moral emotion. It's justice on fire. Now, we often think of anger in its more explosive forms, fury and rage and losing one's temper. But if you think about it, when you're angry, what you're really saying is, this is not right, right? It's it's, it's justice that's at at stake. And so we tend to feel we are right in our anger, though often we're not. Often our idea of justice is is too introspective and too self-centered. But grumbling is, is not anger blazing, it's anger, the, the slow, smoldering anger of resentment. Life's just not fair. What we'll see this morning, in a moment at least anyway, is that we often think we are right to grumble because of our circumstances or because of the people in our lives or the events in our lives. But in reality, grumbling is always against God, the first cause of all things. More about that later. The next word, disputing, is the Greek word dialogismus, dialogismus. And the first part of that dialogue, you'll understand the word. And it can be positive, a back-and-forth dialogue. (laughs) But in our text, dialogismus in the Greek carries the idea of an argumentative, hostile back and forth, two people fighting over whose opinion is right, whose desires are right. And Paul says, such speech 
can have no place in the Christian community, the Christian church, or the Christian family. Do all things. Let that word sink in. Do all things. Not some things. Not most things. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, perhaps you say to yourself, well, okay, but everyone's like that. I mean, everyone grumbles. Everyone disputes. It's part of our, it's, it's part of our, our life. We're, we're made in the image of God, right? We're designed to look for perfection and to notice imperfections. God's like that. And so, it's, it's pretty tough. We live in a world surrounded by idiots and sinners, but we forget that we also are an idiot and a sinner as well ourselves. And not only are we made in God's image, but we're fallen from that image, and so our capacity to see fault and to find blame has been warped and has become crooked and twisted, it's been robbed of humility and love and mercy and grace and kindness. And so we live our lives conscious of our own imperfections, which is bad enough, and we find a perverse delight in finding imperfections in other people's lives. Somehow, if they're worse than we are, we can take some comfort in that, right? And so, it's no surprise then that our natural default posture is um, grumbling and disputing. It's part of the human condition, and it's been a problem for the people of God for as long as we can remember. And if you turn back with me a second uh, to the time of Israel when they're walking through the wilderness, turn back in Deuteronomy a second. Now, Paul uses a remarkable… He, he borrows these words almost exactly. In Deuteronomy 32, we're in um, the, the Song of Moses, right? And this song is going to recount how kind God was to Israel and how evil Israel repaid God, how evilly Israel repaid God for all of His kindness. And you'll know these words, you'll maybe quote them in your prayers. Uh, verse 3, I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, His work is perfect, all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness without injustice, righteous and upright is He, right? You know those words. But look at the next words, almost an exact copy of what Paul says in Philippians 2. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children. Because they are blemished, they are a crooked and twisted generation. Now, compare that with what Paul says. Do all things without grumbling and complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. They are no longer His children, Moses said. But I want you to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Children of God without blemish. Moses says they are no longer His children because they are blemished. Paul says, I want you to be children of God without blemish. Moses says they are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul says, I want you to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do you see the almost exact verbal parallel? 
Paul says, I want you to shine as children of God, blameless in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. Don't be like the Jews in the wilderness who themselves became a crooked and twisted generation and actually lost their right to justly claim that they were children of God at all as God cast them off and left them to die in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting because Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 32 here in the context of not grumbling. And if you remember your Old Testament history, you will remember that grumbling was the defining sin of Israel in the wilderness. No time to go there. If you look at Exodus 14, 15, 16, and 17 this afternoon, you will see a pattern of grumbling when they were at Elam and there wasn't enough water, and then there was no food, no meat, and then they had manna, and then they had too much manna, it was coming out their ears, and they were constantly grumbling. So, you can read that later, but I want to turn you back to Numbers 14 this morning, which is actually the defining climactic sin of Israel in the wilderness. You remember when God sent the spies into the land. Now, God sent the spies into the land, you remember, not to spy out danger, He sent the spies into the land that they might spy out the blessing. They would see how fertile and fruitful and glorious the land was. And the spies saw that. Remember, they brought the the grapes, these huge grapes, the size of oranges almost, huge grapes. And it was just so beautiful, the wondrous glory of the land. But ten of the spies came back, you remember, and what did they say? They said, the land's great, you're right, it's it's wonderful, but the people are too big. They're built like brick outhouses. We can't beat them. And their, their, their cities, their walls are 10 feet thick and 40 feet high. We can't beat these people. It doesn't matter who God is. It doesn't matter what God has said. We will never, we haven't a chance We were like grasshoppers in their sight. They were so massive, and we were so small. Then in Numbers 14, Moses unpacks all this. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people did what? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They're grumbling. No chance. God is not good. Our life is very bad, and we are right to grumble. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And down to verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. 
God says, I will write them out of my will. I will treat them as if they are no longer my children. Remember, Moses stands in the gap, and he, he intercedes between God and the people. And then in verse 26, it goes on, and the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number lifted in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Verse 36, And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord of those who went to spy out the land. Only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. And so you see that when Paul references Deuteronomy 32 and Israel becoming a twisted and crooked generation, he's thinking, and wants you to connect that back to the way grumbling and a discontented heart made them a crooked and twisted generation. And he doesn't want that to happen to the church at Philippi, and he doesn't want that to happen to the church at 811 Jefferson Road which is y'all. <laughs> is that happening to you? Did you feel, are, are you right to grumble? You say, yeah, I am right to grumble. I've got this, this wife who's just always nagging me, or a husband. I can't get him to do anything around the house. He just he doesn't do, he just, oh, he's so frustrating. Or these children who are always resisting my commands or my siblings that are getting in my face, or my in-laws that are so much trouble, or my parents who, who just still are always just… or my job, or life, and all these things to grumble about. And Moses and Paul say to you, but are you right to grumble? Because who, who gave you your wife? Who gave you your husband? Who gave you those children? Who gave you the house that's not as nice as your friend's house? Don't you see that when you grumble, you're really grumbling against God, the author of every blessing you have, who could quite justly, as Jim reminded us so well at the start, execute you this day, and the angels would worship Him. And instead, He executed Jesus, that He might spare you, and that He might spare me. And we need to see that and feel that, that it is never right to grumble. It's toxic, it's negative, it's bad for your soul, it's bad for your body, and it's bad for the church. How is it bad? Well, Paul outlined a number of implications. 
First of all, it short-circuits your spiritual growth. If you look at Philippians 2 again with me. Isn't it interesting? Immediately after Paul, you know, the, the display of Christ's remarkable condescension and humility. He's in the form of God, the exact size and shape of God, worthy to be worshipped as God was worthy to be worshipped. And he made himself nothing. Not by losing his divine glory, but by adding to himself the form of a servant and living the life of a lowest slave to save you. And because of that, he was obedient, not just to the point of death, but to the point of death upon the cross, hanging naked, two feet in the air, at eye level, people walking by, people cursing him, mocking him. He's naked, insulting his manhood, probably, with blood and urine and feces lying in a big heap at the bottom of the, of the cross. And he's dying there in the darkness, abandoned by God, because his, he was determined to make his food and his drink to be obedient to his Father. And that remarkable life demands two therefores. Therefore God hath highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and in hell and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the first one. And the second, therefore, is that you should grow spiritually. Therefore, as you've always obeyed, Paul says, not only in my absence, but now much more in my, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. That's the therefore. Therefore, because of who Christ is, grow spiritually. Put your shoulder to the ply of, of working out your salvation, making your salvation happen, literally, Paul says. And then the next thing Paul says is, do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's interesting. It's the first thing Paul says after, make effort to grow spiritually. What's he saying? There's no better way to short-circuit your spiritual growth than to grumble and complain. Why do you grumble and complain? Life's so hard. Marriage is so hard. Raising kids is so hard. Inflation. Biden did that. It's just all so difficult. It's just, oh, you know, and, and, and all those thoughts, right? Grumbling. How can you grow spiritually when you grumble against the very people and the very events in life that God intends to provoke you to grow spiritually? When you pray for patience and God puts that, in, that invisible flashing sign above your head, morons of the world unite. <laughs> if you whine about all those morons God brings to grow you in patience, how are you going to grow in patience? It's like James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you enter into diverse trials, trials of all different sizes and shapes. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, Paul says, let endurance have its perfect work, its complete work. What's he mean? Well, if, if, if God intends to use trials to provoke you to joy, 
in order that you might become, might, might persevere and become strong. Don't you see that grumbling will completely short-circuit that whole process? I go to the gym. I prefer to torture myself, but there's a bunch of people go, and they pay someone to torture them. But what would it be like if they went, oh, this weight's so heavy. I hate kettlebells. I hate doing burpees. I hate doing press-ups. It's so painful. Do you see, that would completely short-circuit their effort to, to become stronger physically. And when you grumble against your wife or your husband or your children or your parents or your siblings or your colleagues at work or your boss, you're grumbling against the very forces that omnipotent wisdom has placed in your life to glue you and mature you, and that God has promised all things work together for good, even this thing. Oh, but you say, it doesn't matter who God is and what God has said. Oh, oh. If I were God, I would do things differently. What you're really saying. And when we're like that, and we're like that much more often than we'd like to admit, we sound exactly like Israel in the wilderness. So do all things without grumbling and disputing, because if you don't, you will short-circuit your spiritual growth. The next consequence is you will completely disable your ability to witness. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. What kind of a church shines as lights in the world? The kind of a church that does all things without grumbling or disputing. But when you walk into Starbucks with your kids in tow, children, hurry up, come here, don't pick it, Johnny, and it's all, and then you walk in, oh, hi, how you doing? Uh, the baristas, of course, the barista, which is the Italian phrase for he that, she that presses the button on the cappuccino machine, but the barista's going to say, tell me about Jesus, isn't she? As your children are trembling under the wrath of mom or dad, you know, tell me about the love of Jesus. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, that nothing so stains a church and its witness is a church given over to grumbling and disputing about the elders and the business project, the building project, and there's not enough room, and the coffee was too cold, and, you know, all the stuff that we grumble about, and, you know, um, how we don't get our place in our ministry because we get pushed to the side, and so-and-so is the favorite in the church, and they get all the opportunities to minister and do different things, and, and just the grumbling, or in a marriage. Could it be one of the reasons that we make so little progress in our marriages, so little growth, so little progress in witnessing to our children and seeing them thrive spiritually because we've ignored this command? We have done all things with grumbling and disputing, and therefore we've been blameworthy and guilty, looking more like the world than the children of God, twisted and crooked, lost in the darkness, 
because the light has gone out. I've said this before. It would almost be better if we weren't Christians if we can't be joyful Christians. At least then our children and our neighbors could say, well, if they knew Jesus, maybe they'd be happy. I find that very convicting. Grumbling and disputing short circuits our spiritual growth and completely disables our capacity to witness as lights in the dark world. It's worse through grumbling and disputing destroys the soul. See what Paul says? Holding fast to the word of life. That's, that's a church not grumbling, not disputing, shining. They're holding fast. That, that word goes with the previous verses, right? It's a church that's learned to rise above their grumbling, their disputing, and to hold fast to the word of life, the word of eternal life, the word of the gospel. Neither hold fast to words of death, grumbling and disputing, or you can hold fast to the words of life. But you can't do both. You're, the hands of your soul are like a T-Rex. The hands are too small. You either hold on to your grumbling or disputing, or you hold on to the gospel. But you can't hold on to both. And if you drop the gospel, what happens to your soul? It's lost. Not that you've lost your salvation, but that you show that you were never saved at all. And that's what Paul is saying. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud in a good sense, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, if you don't get over, and this is a real problem for the church in Philippi, they're fighting one with one another. There are too many somebodies. And Paul says, if you don't stop that, I will get to the day of judgment and realize that my ministry in your midst has been a complete waste of time. Do you realize all of Kyle's preaching and praying? I'm so, so encouraged this morning by Kyle's prayer, so thoughtful, well-prepared. He prays like that for you. All of our work as ministers and preachers and prayers will be a complete waste of time. We'll get to heaven and realize our efforts were a waste of time if you don't get over your grumbling, argumentative spirit in your hearts, in your homes, and in this church. That's how serious grumbling and disputing is. You need to, some of you here in your marriages, you are at one another's throats constantly, and you need to realize you've got bigger fish to fry. You're arguing about this, that, and everything, and you don't realize your soul is at stake. Do all things without grumbling and complaining so that on the day of Christ, I will realize and Kai will realize we did not waste our time shepherding you and preaching you. Why was it wasted? Because you end up in hell and not in heaven. Not because you lost your salvation, but because your determination to argue like the world shows that you were a twisted and crooked generation yourself, 
and were never a Christian at all. That is convicting. It's convicting to me. Don't forget, I'm from Northern Ireland. Our greeting when things are going well is, how's life going? Not too bad. There's a whole world and life view there. I went there recently to see my mother, and it rained almost all the time. And I thank the Lord for sunshine in North Carolina when I came back again. In other words, how can you claim to be at peace with God if you aren't at peace with the circumstances God has given you? How can you claim to be at peace with God if you can't live at peace with the wife God has given you? And yes, at times she can be hard to live with, I imagine, but she's the wife God's given you. And even when she's hard to live with, God is designing to train you in the school of disappointment to grow you up and push you on. How can you claim to be at peace with God if you can't live at peace with the husband God has given you? the children God has given you, the circumstances God has sent into your life. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. It's not that you become a a child of God by being a peacemaker. No, you show yourself to be a child of God by being a peacemaker. And some of you are much better at making war than you are at making peace. And that should be a, a, a warning light flashing on the, on the dashboard of your soul. What to do? First of all, Stop it. I'm reminded of um, a good elder friend of mine back in Northern Ireland, Ernest Brown. Ernest by name, Ernest by nature. Um, he always looked 65, even when he was 30. I didn't know him then, though, but he, 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 he looked 65 when he probably was 50, I think. But he, he's always been a very serious, and I love him. He's just a very earnest minister, or elder. But he was talking to the youth group one time in a suit, four, three-piece suit. He always wore a suit, even when he cut the grass. He took his jacket off, but he cut the suit. But he was just such, a, and he taught himself Greek to, to read his Bible better. Just such a good man, love Ernest. But the youth group asked him, "What advice would you give a young couple struggling with your the physical side of their relationship before they got married?" He said, "Stop it." <laughs> just blunt. First thing, you got to stop grumbling. Now, to grumble, stop grumbling and disputing. You got to actually understand first of all why you grumble and dispute. And I mean actually get beneath, because most of us too often, I've been really exercised by this recently, as you might have seen in my covenanter this week, and I apologize, it was very, very long, and I cut it off midway through, and I realized all of the Bible was in the second half. So you, next week, the week after, you'll get the Bible, but the first bit was the press to that. But I didn't want to give you a 2,000-word covenanter. But the, the problem for too many of us is we are emotional imbeciles. We, we're not good. Well, we tend to live only at the level of our emotions, which makes us very volatile. 
So teenagers, when your dad gives you a curfew or tells you not to spend so much time on TikTok or Instagram or something else, and immediately you get angry. Right? That's okay. It's not okay to get angry, but you're angry, right? Your problem is you live at the level of your emotions. You can't get deeper, right? It's not a question of, okay, you're angry now, but why are you angry? Why does it make you so mad when your parents give you limits? And I just don't like it isn't a good enough answer. You've got to go deeper. Like, really parse it out. And parents, when you go home for the holidays to see your, your parents back in Wichita or somewhere, I don't know, and you go home and you're now a CEO of some business somewhere and your dad still treats you like a little boy, why does that annoy you so much? It just, it just annoys me. No, no, that's not good enough. You've got to parse it back. Why does it annoy you so much? Really get down. to the nitty-gritties, because you've got to realize that your emotions don't just come from themselves. You can't deal with your emotions. When you're angry, I just can't tell you, well, I can, but it won't work. Calm down. When you're anxious, I can't say, take a chill pill. It doesn't work. When you're impatient, I can't tell you, just chill out. It's okay. It doesn't work. You've got to isolate the thoughts feeding into those emotions. Otherwise, you will never be able to deal rationally with your emotions, and you'll always be an emotionally volatile person, which is not the kind of person you want to do be if you want to stop grumbling and complaining, because the moment you feel bad, the moment life sucks, you're going to say, oh, my life sucks, I'm really down. What are you going to do? Oh, I've got this feeling, and I've got to do something with it. I'm going to make everybody else's life suck by telling them about how bad I feel. And you'll just be constantly emoting all of the toxic stuff inside you. But if you go back and, and um, actually get back behind those thoughts, like, Dad, why does it annoy you so much when your children disrespect you? Just does. Not good enough. No, it's because... Deep down inside, you fear that you might not be worthy of respect. That they see through the veneer and they realize that you really are a, a cheap excuse for a human being. And that they just might be right. And so this, this suddenly you feel naked and exposed and condemned and blameworthy. And once you isolate that thought, then you can deal with it rationally. You can say, I deserve condemnation. I am a failure. But I have a Savior who died in the place of failures. And who's in the business of putting the broken pieces of my soul back together again. And if you can live at that level, beneath your emotions, the thoughts feeding into them, You can then address them with this book of words. Why are you grumbling so much? I believe I deserve a better life. It's not fair that they've got more than me. Oh, that's why you're grumbling. Okay. 
Do all things without grumbling or complaining is one. Beware of covetousness, which is idolatry. That's another. You deserve a better life. The last time I checked in here somewhere, I think, it said I deserved hell. Anything else is a colossal bonus. So we've got to learn to get behind our grumbling, our argumentative ways, and figure out what are the thoughts, what toxic, unbelieving, godless thoughts are feeding in. I just can't cope. No, no. This book says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. Right? So, you've got to get beneath the grumbling, figure out why. What toxic, unbelieving, godless, self-centered, prideful thoughts are feeding into your heart? Parse them out and bring them to the gospel and make them stand in the light of day. And if you can deal with your thoughts, you will suddenly find that you have dealt with your emotions, which are the smoke of your thoughts. So, you've got to put off grumbling, number one. Secondly, you've got to lay down your life to serve one another. Now, I need to go back up here because my battery and my iPad died. I don't want to carry my laptop down, so forgive me. Um, you know, let me read this to you quickly. This is, uh, these are Paul's words, right, when he says about, um, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. That's Don Carson's translation. Listen to Don Carson as he describes what Paul means here. Those words are hard to kind of unpack. Carson says, the argument is subtle, but it's very important. Paul writes, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In this metaphor, the actions of the Philippians constitute the primary sacrifice. They give themselves to Christ and commit themselves to pleasing Him, whatever the cost. Then, if Paul has to give up his life, his sacrifice is merely a kind of libation poured out on top of their sacrifice. Such a libation is meaningless unless it is poured out on a more substantial sacrifice. But their Christian living is that sacrifice. Paul's martyrdom should occur or the pains, sufferings, and persecutions he faces as an apostle are the complimentary drink offering poured out over theirs. Paul says, in effect, if I suffer or even lose my life in a sacrifice, a sacrifice poured out on top of your principled self-denial, I am delighted. What I do not want is to die a martyr's death without any corresponding fruit in your life. As it is, whatever small sacrifice I am called upon to make is but a complimentary capstone to the sacrifice that all Christians are called to make. In this I will rejoice, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And so, and Paul here is like Jim in this regard, in many regards, but Jim is this wonderful saying, you get what you encourage, right? Uh, what would you expect? The, the Philippians aren't here. Right? They're living, they're sacrificing one another in their argumentative spirit, biting and devouring. And Paul is trying to encourage them by the sacrifice of Christ to live a sacrificial life themselves. And then Paul says, I'll not be wasting my life as I sacrifice myself, pouring myself out to the dregs, trying to make you be better sacrifices for Christ yourself. And so what I'm saying to you this morning is, 
There's no better way to stop grumbling than to lay yourself down and serve the people who tempt you to grumble. Be a servant. Pour yourself out. But they don't deserve it, you say. And Jesus said, you're right, but last time I checked, you didn't deserve the Son of God to pour Himself out serving you either. But He did. So, stop grumbling by getting to the root of it, what's really causing it. Pour yourself out as a sacrifice, and thirdly, be glad. You should also be glad, Paul says. You know, joy is a choice. You've got to choose to be joyful and grateful. I read recently, this wasn't even a believer, this unbeliever they had the practice of every day, at the end of every day, writing down ten things for which he was grateful. And he said, you know, initially it was pretty banal, you know, thankful for my wife, my children, the sunshine today, you know, all that kind of stuff. But as he did this every day, he said, I began to get more inventive and it began to become more grateful effortlessly. It began to see more that there were, my life was littered with reasons to be grateful. Like your laundry machine breaks, washing machine breaks. Thank God, 200 years ago, to wash your clothes, ladies, you had to carry the clothes down to a stream and beat them with a rock in the water, rain, hail, or snow then drag them all back to the house and somehow dry them, right? The washing machine might be broken, but thank God the washing machines exist in the first place. It takes so long flying to California. 200 years ago, you had to go there in wagon train. It took 30 years to get there, and most of you died along the way, you know? (laughs) As bad as the delays are with Delta, you should get to your destination safely most of the time. They may lose your bags, but you'll not lose your life. Now, there are so many reasons to be grateful, and we need to choose to be joyful and thankful. It's a habit. You've got to choose joy. Give thanks at all things, at all times, and for all things. And if you can't do that, it tells you more about yourself than it does about your life. Bring your circumstances to Jesus. Don't be like the Grinch. I watched the Grinch recently. One of the most profoundly disturbing movies I have ever seen. My kids loved it. The first deeper said to the movie, it was like, oh, just, everything was the wrong color and shape and size, and the Grinch was just a psychopath. But, you know, it was very disturbing. My kids loved it, though. But, you know, what happened? He got his feelings hurt in primary school, and the rest of his life he was a Grinch. And that's... It's a deep lesson that happens. Life hurts us. People hurt us. We think, God has hurt me. And we internalize all that manure. And the thing about manure is your life's, your heart's like a five-gallon bucket of water. And you can't just take a little bit of manure and drop it in and say, well, just keep that over in the corner, right? I am bitter toward this person because they betrayed me, they hurt me. You can't, just, you can't just keep that bitterness between you and them. It spreads everywhere and affects everything. That's the way God made you. You've got to learn to bring it to God, bring it to Christ. If anyone had a right to be bitter, it was Jesus. Being treated as the greatest sinner there ever was. 
But he saw his father's hand behind it all and gave his chest, his heart, to the sword. Awake, sword, against my shepherd, the father said. And Jesus says, Father, here's my heart. Bring your bitterness, bring your anger, bring your grumbling to Jesus and learn to give thanks to Him for nothing else because of the great difference between what you receive and what you deserve. Amen. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you for Jesus. Please forgive me, Father. I'm so by nature, there's always a but. Even when I explain good things, there's often a but. And I pray, Father, that you would help me, help my people here, oh God, to be joyful, thankful. Even in the holidays, as families come together and there's tension, and we can be thankful that tension exposes our heart. It helps us understand, why am I this way? Why do I find these people get on my nerves at times, even though I love them so much? And and it can show us how sin continues to warp us and therefore give us fresh energy to come and confess our sins and fresh reason, if ever we needed fresh reason, to come to Jesus and have him cleanse us all the way to the bottom. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we conclude our service this morning, singing to God's praise. Hymn number 195. What a hymn to finish with. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Amen. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be your portion now and forevermore until the day breaks. And whatever you face in life, 
May the Lord be to you a river of joy in the midst of Jerusalem. May be your strength, your refuge, your help in tight places, always close at hand. And whatever troubles surround you or oppress you, may you know that the Lord of hosts is with you and the God of Jacob is your stronghold so that you can be still and know that He is God today and forever. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>